The bad part of that is that with the type of probation he was given, if he completed it, then these felonies are wiped from his record. So then probation ended. The stalking felonies are removed from his record. And two months later, what does he do? He starts again. Grown Girl Gang, welcome back to the Girl We Grow Now podcast. I am your host, Victoria, and we are wrapping up our safety series this week. I had the pleasure of having Jennifer Thames on the podcast to share her story about her experience with her stalker. You guys, I was mind blown at how delusional this man was. But what I will say is I'm so grateful that Jennifer was willing to come on and share her story because I think that it's really important that we hear stories like this because sometimes we think of these things and we see them as things that are so unlikely to happen and it's just like, you know, the Netflix movies or the Lifetime movies. But no, these things do happen. I shared this in a previous episode, but there are millions of women who have experienced stalking, so it truly is something that can happen to anyone. So a little bit about Jennifer. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she has her own practice in Tennessee. She specializes in working with trauma and relationships, and she's the co-founder of the Refuge Center for Counseling, which is a nonprofit center that offers accessible and affordable counseling in her area, which I think is so amazing. After surviving years of stalking, she went on to become an advocate for stalking awareness and lobbied the Tennessee state legislature with the stalking preventative bill to update the outdated stalking law. We will talk about this more in the episode, but she helped create the law that would help protect future victims and ensure that they have more legal support when being stalked. So Jennifer continues to share her story on social media and she has a book called hunted coming soon and she really shares her story in hopes that other victims of stalking and harassment will be encouraged to fight for their own safety and healing despite the trauma that they've survived. Again, I truly am in awe of just the fact that she has worked and dedicated herself to help make the law better support people who are being stalked legally. I think that is so amazing. So with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the conversation with Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the Grow We Grow Now podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. I am so grateful that you share your story because I know that you're helping a lot of women. That's my hope. Okay, so before we get into it, I love to start with an icebreaker for for my guest. Okay. So what is the best life advice you've ever received that you still apply today? I read a quote somewhere. I think it was a lady who's an author and also a book agent. And she said, be the same person in every room. And that sort of call to authenticity is something that has resonated with me for years and something I strive to do to not morph myself to different expectations, but to be authentically who I am in every room. And that's one of my favorite things I've ever heard. I love that so much because I do believe that when you operate that way, people are going to see you for you and you're going to end up in the spaces that you're meant to end up in. So I think that is an amazing quote. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
So can you share your story with us about what you went through when you found out you had a stalker? Absolutely. So there's a few different parts to my story. So it began originally when I was in junior high school in Texas. The guy who wound up stalking me for years, I didn't know who he was. He sent a letter. He wrote a letter, gave it to one of my friends to give to me. And I read it and it was like, oh, okay, like a secret admirer or something. I had no idea who he was. And someone pointed him out to me and I just didn't know him. And I really didn't have an interest in getting to know him. So immediately it just kind of gave me weird vibes, you know, like mm-hmm. I was 13 or 14 and it was like this guy is writing all these things about me and he doesn't even know me. That just feels weird. Yeah. Was he your age as well or was he a little bit older or younger? He was younger. He was a year younger. So that just began the whole thing. He would send letters and then and hand them to other people to give to me and I never wrote anything back, never responded, never talked to him. And then he lived with his grandmother who happened to live a few streets over from where I lived. And so he would come and ring the doorbell and he would call my house. And in the beginning, I felt like I needed to be nice to him because that's just the societal expectation. You're just nice to everybody. And I remember my mom telling me at a certain point, she was like, you don't have to answer the door when he comes. You don't you don't have to answer the phone. Like You're not obligated to be welcoming of him if you don't like him. And so I started just avoiding him. But then as it goes on through high school, like he would continue continue sending letters. He would continue calling and there was no, there wasn't reciprocity, but it never stopped him. It never deterred him at all. Um, And the letters were full of infatuation, full of You know, sometimes they were kind of disturbing things in terms of his interest in me, but it was never reciprocated. There was never even a friendship there. It was just based on what he projected onto me. And then in high school, there would be times where I would go somewhere and he was there, like the mall or the movie theater, places that kids go. And like I see him and I remember a few times being at the mall and seeing him like walking at a distance behind me and I would go hide in a department store in the bathroom or one time it was in a, I think it was like an express or something something like that. And I went and hid in, you know, a circle of jeans until I saw his feet go by. And then I left immediately. So you guys went to the same middle school, the same high school. And did he ever try to approach you at school? I don't recall him doing it at school. He didn't talk to me at school, but he would send letters. After a while, he started just mailing the letters directly to my house. I just know how scary that is as an adult. So just being so young, did you at first, did you just think he was weird or did you, when did you know it was actually stalking and it was something that was really dangerous and that could potentially be dangerous? I absolutely just thought it was weird. There was just something about him, like like kind of the look about him, his eyes, like something just gave me a feeling that it was off. And it disturbed me. It made me uncomfortable. But I don't think that I had words to to label it as such until I think I was a junior in high school. And one day I was called to one of the guidance counselor's offices and she wanted to talk to me and I had no idea why. And I went in and she said, well, I've just spent an hour talking to this guy and I'm concerned for you based on what he said. Oh, wow. And she said, I would like to know if it's okay with you if I change some things in his schedule to where your class are not uh, where he won't be exiting in the same part of the building at the same time. Like I I would just feel more comfortable if 
he was further away from you in your daily life at school. And it was, it scared me for her to say that, but it was kind of a recognition of, oh, this actually, this is a big deal. I had been kind of bothered by it and I thought it was weird, but it didn't register like how disturbing it was until an adult kind of confirmed like, this is concerning. I'm concerned for you based on what he said. Yeah, that would be so terrifying. I can't imagine being, I'm trying to think like if I was a junior in high school, how that would make me feel as a teenager. So Mm -hmm. did she end up involving your mom and telling her? No, she had me tell my parents and I told them and they were, you know, they thought he was weird. They thought it was bizarre that he came to the house. My dad is the most kind human being, but he's also built like a linebacker. He's 6'4". And I think He at times felt concerned that because my bedroom was toward the front of the house where the front door was and the doorbell and everything. And he felt nervous about my windows being there and him being within walking distance. So after that conversation with your guidance counselor, I know you were scared. Did that kind of change the way that you operated when you were at school? Mm -hmm. At that point, like it was something that I kind of would tell friends about, like in this joking way, like, gosh, this guy's so weird. I don't know why he's doing this. And after that sort of validation of concern, I started telling friends like, this is this is not right. I want to keep my distance. I don't I don't want to point him out to anyone in the hallway because I don't want to see him in the hallway. Like I want to avoid him. Did your friends know who he was or you kind of just told them there's the weird guy? It was a really big high school. So I think some people knew who he was. But nobody that I knew was friends with him. He was kind of a loner. He didn't have a lot of friends. He had a twin brother who didn't stalk people, but he did. Were you the only person he was stalking? Or do you know if he was stalking other people at the school as well? No, I've never heard of him doing it to anyone else. So did that continue all throughout high school and after? So... I went to college and then at the same time, my parents moved to a different part of Texas because my dad got a job transfer and eventually like all my family left my hometown of Odessa, Texas. And so there was no reason to go back or there was not a family based reason to go back. So I so no, I didn't see him for years. So from maybe 18, 19, if if I was there on weekends and I don't remember if I saw him at that point. So basically from 18 until 34 I kind of just forgot about it. And it was something I would vaguely remember occasionally and like, oh, yeah, that happened. I had this guy stalked me when I was in junior high and high school. But then in 2014, he found me online and began sending messages. And immediately, did you know who it was? Did he use his real name or no? He did use his real name. And it took me a minute to kind of place it like, wait, who is this from high school? Because he was telling me about his wife and his kids and how he's doing and all of that. And I was trying to place it. And then it was this like, oh, oh, no, it's this guy. Yeah, I can't even like, how did he find me? I know. Yeah, I guess he just was it Facebook, probably. Mm -hmm. It was Facebook Messenger was how the initial messages were coming in. So he just started sending you messages, seeing how you were doing and telling you about his family. Yeah, that was the first message. And, and I didn't, you know, it was 2014. I didn't use Facebook Messenger was pretty new at that point, And I have never used it a ton. But I didn't realize that it was automatically set up to give read receipts. So I read them that first message, but I didn't respond to it. The first message was kind of he tried to present like in a very casual way, like, like oh, just wanted to see how you're doing. No pressure. But then within hours, it was suddenly message after message after message. And then it was, I've never stopped thinking of you. I'm so glad that I found you. And I've never stopped loving you and and all these things. And 
it was immediately like, where is this coming from? Like, what is he thinking? And I'm thinking I'm reading them anonymously. I'm thinking I'm like behind a wall reading them. And he was getting a read receipt every time I would open it and check the messages. When did you realize that he was getting a read receipt? Did he tell you, I see you reading them or something? Yes, it was a message where he said, I know that you feel the same way too, because you're reading all of these messages. And yeah, so then it was like, oh, he knows that I have read them. Wow. So did you ever respond or did you block him? What were what was the next step after getting all those messages? That all happened very quickly because once he started, he didn't stop the messages. Like so once I realized... Every hour? Was it... He just bombarded oh, you with messages? It was hundreds. It was through the night. It was all day. I don't think that he had a job. Or a wife. And he couldn't have had a family. Oh, he did. So at the point that I realized he knew I was reading them, I said, listen, like, you don't know me. You know an idea of me. And it sounds to me like your focus needs to be on your wife and your children. And you don't need to communicate with me any further. How did he take that? He thought that because I responded, that it was a very positive thing and that it meant that I cared and that I didn't understand how bad things were with his wife and how hard his life had become. And like I was... I was the future that he was supposed to have and and things like that. Like everything was very, very delusional. Nothing was ever based in in any kind of reality. Wow. So it sounds like he went through a rough patch and he was like, let me find Jennifer again. Like I can't even understand psychologically how that worked. But so after that, did you end up blocking him eventually? Yes. Uh, when So these messages, it was the first few months of this and... I didn't check the messages constantly, but I would check just to see like what's going on. I'm a therapist, so I know that with any type of abuse situation, you're monitoring for signs of escalation. And I felt relatively safe because he was in Texas and I live in Tennessee. And I felt like there's a buffer of distance there, so I don't need to be too worried. But there was an altercation with his wife. She left with their children and got an order of protection against him because he assaulted her oh um, because they were fighting over the messages he was sending me. Because she said um, hmm And then he blamed me for the loss of his wife and children. And so he got on a bus. And at that point, before he got on the bus, I blocked him because I was like, that's really disturbing. Like I, at this point, like I don't need to know anymore. And immediately I blocked him on Facebook Messenger immediately. He started texting my cell phone because he got my phone number from my professional website. Oh man. So I blocked him on my phone, but there there's a blocked voicemail file that is there if you block someone. So if they call, it's in no the block. I didn't either until I blocked. I had never had to block somebody before. True. <laughs> <laughs> so one night I was taking my dogs out and um and I'm scrolling down to the through these messages because I was looking for one and I see this file at the very bottom that said blocked voicemail file and I thought, well, I've never seen that before. So I click on it and it was full of messages. So I listened to the most recent one where he says he's on a bus, he's coming to find me. And he expects me to pick him up at the bus station. And I owe him because he, he now lost his wife and children because of me. So I owe him. And he, he's thinking he's going to come and stay with me. So that was kind of the first moment of true terror about the situation. And that was the night that I first called the police. That sounds terrifying. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. When you made that first call to the police, what did they say? 
So I called the police non-emergency number and I had printed out all of the Facebook messages and it was over 6,000 at that point. And wow. And that was that was that's nothing. That's just the beginning. Um, but I printed them out. It cost me $34 <laughs> to print them out. It's super thick. I'm still annoyed about that. But the police came and they looked through the messages and they said, This is really concerning. You need to consider some sort of self-defense methods. Like you need to do everything you can to keep your home safe. Like this, this is very dangerous, but based on the law, this isn't considered stalking. Like we know it's stalking, but legally it's not considered stalking. So we can't do anything at this point. Wow. So what is legally considered stalking? Because in my mind, I would have thought that legally was considered stalking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the time in Tennessee, the law had not been updated since 1994. And that included physical stalking and and harassing a person. It, it included telephone calls. And I believe it, it included emails too. But none of it included social media messages or text messages because those things didn't exist in 1994. What? I That's so similar to an email. I would think that would just fall under it. No, no, it didn't. And that was kind of one of the major things that made me, once we got through some of the dangerous part, work on the law to update it in my state because, I mean, that was such a loophole in the law. A very big one. Mm -hmm. Part of me wonders, well, I guess he didn't know you were in Tennessee at first. Part of me was wondering if he knew that, but probably not because he seemed like he was so deep into his delusions. I think he knew pretty quickly because he okay. he searched all kinds of things. He He searched through social media and saw like pictures that I had posted of my kids and so was then mentioning my kids by name, which that's that's infuriating and terrifying. Yes. So after that first conversation with the police, how did that make you feel? Like what did what did you decide that you needed to do? Did you get a self-defense method for a tool? So it made me feel I, I was I was completely nervous to call the police. I had to call a friend beforehand who's also a therapist and just say like like, okay, talk me through this. Like, I have to call the police. And she and she was like, yeah, Jen, you have, to, you have to do this now. But it kind of made everything very real at that point. Because they told me, like, now that you've called, if you call again, we'll prioritize it. Because we know you're in an active, dangerous situation that, that's unknown. But yeah, it absolutely scared me. It's kind of a controversial topic. So I want to be careful how I speak of it. But I did... I didn't purchase a, a firearm, but I had a friend who had one who loaned it to me and I would go to the gun range and I would practice, but I never felt, you know, I had, my kids were young at that time. I felt really uncomfortable. So I had, a, I had a safe and everything to keep it locked up at all times, but, but it felt like it, it wasn't something I decided to do because like, Hey, I just want to feel empowered or I want to, it, it was something I felt like I was being encouraged to do because I had to be able to defend my life if it came down to it. And that's a very different motivation. Yeah, yourself and your kids. So mm -hmm. That is a very different motivation. So I completely understand that. I know I've heard um, there's this woman on TikTok who was talking about her story with her stalker. And she said she had been against guns forever because her dad was paralyzed by one when she was younger. Hmm. But when the police couldn't do anything for her, she felt like that was her only way of getting some sort of way of to feel safe. Mm -hmm. At least that she was going to, if she had to, she didn't want to, but if she had right. to, she was going to be able to protect herself. And mm -hmm. I think that that speaks volumes to that our laws are not the way they should be if people feel like they 
are so against guns, but they don't know what else to turn to. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. When the police officers are, I mean, they were communicating that they cared. They were communicating that it was dangerous, but they were also, without saying so, were saying you're on your own. And that's which terrifying. is Yeah, because I also had not seen this guy since high school, so I didn't know what he looked like. Did he have so, any pictures on his Facebook? There was nothing. That adds another level of terror, so I completely understand that. Mm-hmm. So were you concerned, because I know he found your number from your professional website, but were you concerned that he was going to be able to find out where you live? Yes. And most people's addresses are easily searched because they have a mortgage or because you order pizza and then the pizza delivery place puts your address on on a mailing list and suddenly your address is public. Like there's a million ways that... Uh, so scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Uh, he found out very, very quickly where I lived. So from the time you listened to that voicemail where he was saying, I'm on a bus, I'm on my way, how long did it take before you had an encounter with him or he found you? So because I never picked him up at the bus station, <laughs> he went back to Texas and then he came back again. And again, his motivation was that I owed him and that I was going to pay for the for the suffering that I had caused him. So he did that a few times, like going back and forth. And every time he did, I called the police. And the second time I called them, they said, yeah, this is escalating into the point, though he is very careful in his anger to not say directly threatening things, like a reasonable person would feel very fearful of what he's saying and what he's doing. So since they didn't know where he was and they couldn't find him, they gave me an order of protection, but it's an ex parte order of protection. So it's it's in place, but we nobody has served him with it yet. But through all of that, he continues messaging all night long and all day long. So can you see blocked messages? Is that how you knew he was messaging you? Or did he find a way? Did he change a number or? Well, in the beginning, I did. I unblocked him because that's another important part is the police told me that I needed to have a message that said like an unconditional no contact order. So I put in all caps, you know, do not ever contact me ever again, or you will encounter legal consequences. And I think he immediately responded like the legal consequences that we're going to get married and we will be legally bound together. Like he really twisted everything in just unfathomable ways. So then as he keeps going back and forth, I'm calling the police again as I find this information because I didn't keep him permanently blocked because I needed to know what he's doing. Seems like he was telling you every move he was making and every time he was coming to Tennessee. Yes, that is one thing that he did do. He was very... (laughs) very informative about what his moves were going to be. But then when he got here, he was under the radar. So like one time he showed up and he had been saying he was depressed and potentially wanted to take his life. So when I called the police about that one and was filing that report, they said, oh, if he's a danger to himself, then we legally can ping his phone in his location. And I thought, oh, great, they'll be able to catch him. And he was downtown in Nashville. And right then, a Tennessee Titans game ended. And so an extra like 60,000 people were all in downtown Nashville at the same time. So they were like, there's no way we can find him. So he was clear about what his actions were going to be, but he always found ways to stay under the radar. When he was close by. So Mm -hmm. how, like, what was that feeling? Like when he would go under the radar, knowing that he was in Tennessee? Yeah, that was very scary 
combined with the fact that I didn't know what he looked like and combined with the fact that his beliefs were all so delusional and obsessive. You know, I'm looking around me everywhere I go. I'm looking at people and is that what he could look like? He could look like him or him. I'm looking around like trying to trying to not be blindsided if he shows up. Uh, how did that, like during that time of him going back and forth between Texas and Tennessee, how did that affect your routines? I know you said you had a practice. Like how did that affect all of that? I think having my work, I specialize in working with trauma. I think that was actually one of the things that kept me steady and sane during all of it because as I'm facing the trauma of other people and I'm focused on, yes, you go through hard things, but your focus can't stay there. Your focus needs to be on healing from it. And how do I continue to live though this thing happened? So that was actually very helpful. And my phone became a source of trauma. You know, I didn't I didn't want to look at my phone. I didn't want to answer my phone because I knew though I could silence my phone when I opened it, there would be so many new notifications that he was messaging from different places. Wow. So did you reach out to any of your family, your friends, your parents? I don't know if they were also in Tennessee or are. No, the rest of my family is still in Texas. I told my dear friends really early on and they were a constant source of support for me and they were concerned and they they really carried me through. I didn't tell my parents right away because I'm the youngest of four and my second oldest sister had at the same time that the stalking messages began, she was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And so my parents were taking her to all her appointments and helping her. And it was that was terrifying. So it wasn't until after the first police report that, that I told them because I didn't want them to worry about two daughters at the same time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like you really, like you said, like your background with psychology really helped you stay steady and calm. And even now, like when you talk about it, you're so steady and calm. So I think one that's amazing because I just can't imagine. I feel like I'm someone I would be in a full on panic. I can't imagine like the anxiety that it could cause not knowing, like you said, you don't know what he looks like, but you know, he's around, but under the radar. So I can imagine that that really helped you like mentally and emotionally. And it sounds like you were still able to like work and do the things that you were doing before. Yeah, but don't get me wrong. I had a ton of anxiety and I couldn't sleep. And I'll never forget the night of my first panic attack. I was married to my ex-husband at the time and he had a job where he traveled. And the stalker sent a message saying, leave the front porch light on if you want me to come over. And I had already like locked up the house and I had, of course, all the outside lights on that I could because light equals safety. And then I just started crying because I was like, if he's watching the house and I go turn the light off, then he sees that and that's a signal. If I leave the light on, then he thinks I'm okay with it. And he sees that as a signal. And I just felt so hopeless at that point. And then, and I started sobbing and he wrote, oh, don't cry, baby. (gasps) And then I started shaking all over and my heart was racing and I was sweating, but I was freezing. You know, we talk about, oh, I had a panic attack and it's a moment of intense anxiety. Like a true panic attack, it feels like a heart attack. And it it felt like my body was out of control. And, you know, I've taught classes on how to meditate, how to regulate your nervous system, how to calm panic and anxiety. And in a true panic attack, that might slow it down a little bit, but it's not going to do much because your body is trying to keep you safe. And I couldn't stop it. 
Yeah. So you said your husband was traveling and it was just you and the kids at the house. Mm-hmm. And so after he said that, what did you do? Were the blinds open? Is that like, how did he see you? It was late at night. So I just stayed in my room and cried all night long and shook for hours because I didn't know, like, is he going to come ring the doorbell? Is he going to break a window? So how was like your, I know you said your ex-husband, but how was he through all of this? He was worried, but he he also felt sorry for him. Like he felt like he's just a really sick individual, but he also was dealing with a lot of stress himself. So he was going through a major job change, which is why he was working out of town. And so I, I don't think he fully got the severity of the situation until much later. How long did this continue? So it was June of 2014 that he started sending the messages and it was at the end of February of 2015, when the police finally arrested him. So it took five police reports. And that was the sixth time that I called the police that they caught him. Okay. So that sixth time, was he at your house? Is that why they were able to arrest him? Yeah. So that time I had I'd gone to my office. I was seeing my clients. And I was just finishing with a client and I and I had my phone open because I was scheduling for the next session. And then what he had done at that point, because I had taken to blocking him more. So he got an app that would just generate endless new phone numbers and he could create endless new Facebook identities. So if I blocked him here, he would message me there like I couldn't block everything. Mm -hmm. So he sent me a message and said, I'm coming to your house. But I just saw that there's somebody else's car there and tell them that they need to leave because I have to do this in person. I have to do this alone. And that was my babysitter's car that was there with my three kids. Oh, my goodness. So I get my client out of the office. And then I get at that point, there was a police sergeant on the case who who had given me her cell phone number because she was really worried about the escalation that was happening And so she had people watching the neighborhood. So they were there like really fast and they caught him and he was sitting in his car outside my house. Waiting for you to get home in that car to leave. Mm -hmm. Wow. So when he was arrested, were they able to immediately put charges on him and hold him or was he able to get out? What happened from there? That was such everything is such a long, complicated answer. So he was arrested. He was not able to get out. So the commissioner on the case, he the night that he was arrested, I had met him before at one of the previous police reports. And he was very concerned about what was going on. And he said, please let me know when the Lifetime movie of this comes out, because this is just such a horrific story. So then the night that the stalker was arrested, he was the same, the same judge that was there. And he said this escalated so severely and this got so dangerous that he set the bail at $210,000, which is just astronomical for stalking. So he was charged with two counts of aggravated stalking and one count of harassment. And there were many hearings over the next several months, like, are we going to go to trial? Is he going to plead guilty or not guilty? He had several public defenders, and it kept being postponed because there were questions if he was competent to stand trial, because he adamantly believed and defended, I'm not stalking. No, she hasn't communicated, but she does want this. Wow. So they would question if he was competent to stand trial. And that doesn't mean, are you 
sane or not. It means even if you have many mental health issues that keep you outside of standard reality, if you can cognitively understand the charges against you and the general notion of the criminal justice system and the charges of or the court proceedings, then you're competent to stand trial. What did they end up deciding? And do you, part of me wonders, was that, was he playing them? I don't know. He He's a dangerous combination of, he's crazy. <laughs> Like, as a therapist, I don't use that term a lot, but I think he gets like he yeah. gets to have that, but also intelligent. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where it became difficult to discern because he can speak really intelligently and really articulately, so much so that he, in almost every court proceeding that we've had over the last eight years, he represents himself. He does tons of legal research so that he can represent himself, so that he can cross-examine me, so that he can legally have access to stalk me. My mind is blown, and I bet the police commissioner's mind was blown as well. So mm-hmm. he got rid of his public defenders, and he was representing himself. So that first time, he tried to do that, and the judge shut it down immediately and said, you've got one more shot, or I'm going to say that you are not competent to stand trial. So then she assigned him a different public defender. And at that point, I was filled with so much stress and anxiety. They offered a deal that if, if he pleads guilty, then we can avoid a trial, and then he has probation. So So no jail time. Well, he was in jail during all of this, but that wasn't actually like, that wasn't part of a sentencing. That was just figuring out if he's competent to stand trial. And the bail was so high, it would be difficult for anyone in his family to put the money together to get him out. So he was in jail from February till August was when we had a deal. And he took it. it. Yeah. And it was not a good deal because he got three years probation, but nobody in his family would agree to let him live in their city and and not like take care of him, but be a point of contact for him. So he had family in Texas and family in California and they wouldn't do it. And so the only way that the state felt like they could keep an eye on his probation and make sure it happened was to keep him in Tennessee. So his probation was then he is bound to the city of Nashville and he can't leave for three years. How did that make you feel? Awful. Because then like now he's in my city for the next three years and he has to stay away from me or he goes to prison at that point. But it's such an invasion that he's done this. has no reason to be here. Yeah, exactly. But now he's in my city for three years. So that was pretty terrible. And did he follow through with the probation and just leave you alone? Or did you have to go through this again? So he technically followed the probation in that he didn't try to text me or or call me or anything. But when I was renewing my order of protection, he decided to appeal that. So then he represented himself. And then we had several court dates of appeal where he got to cross-examine me and question me for an hour. And the judge always upheld the order of protection. But in the meantime, there were several, several hearings where he got to see me. So it wasn't like there was no contact for three years. And then after those three years ended, oh, and he trespassed on the Vanderbilt University by sleeping in the law library of Vanderbilt University. He was arrested by the pol- the Vanderbilt police for that because they have their own police force, but that wasn't added to his probation and counted against him, which 
it should have. There were several. Why not? He's a record. Because the probation system is part of the criminal justice system and doesn't always work well. And he had so many different probation officers. I think things just fell through the cracks. But the bad part of that is that with the type of probation he was given, if he completed it, then these felonies are wiped from his record. And that's what happened. So then probation ended. The stalking felonies are, are removed from his record. And two months later, what does he do? He starts again. Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. So this is, is this 2017? Or no, no, 2018. Yeah, it's 2018 at that point. And so do you just immediately call the police? Like how, like what is this next process? So the messages started coming in. And at that point, I felt like I don't need to send a message saying, do not contact me because I put you in jail. I've had orders of protection, like all of these things have been done. You now officially legally documented know that I don't want you to communicate with me. So this time around, I never responded at all. So it was several months of messages and the same escalation was happening. And so he was messaging you. Then eventually he started coming by your house. That escalation or? No, just the escalation in the messages okay. with the volatility. And I had no idea where he was at that point. He wasn't giving clues about that. Yeah. So at that point, I know what he's capable of. And I know this stuff tends to continue to escalate. And they don't like people who do things like this. They don't recognize like, oh, okay, enough's enough this far and no further. They just keep going. So it was, again, several thousand messages. And and I had moved at that point. So after he was arrested, I didn't want to live in my house anymore. He had followed me in my car, followed me through a grocery store, had all the evidence of all of that. Like I changed out the car that I was in and changed a lot about my life to distance myself from him and to make myself more anonymous if he did this again in the future. So then when he started doing this again, I felt very unsettled that, you know, my gosh, what else do I have to do to feel safe? Did you have a little inkling that he likely would start it up again after he finished probation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so even though you changed the house, you changed the car, I don't know, did you change your number and he still mm -hmm. was able to find you? I didn't change my number because I don't know. I felt kind of indignant about that. Like that's been my phone number since I was 21. And it's how that. people have reached me professionally. And it like I changed so much about my life, but there were certain things where it's just like, why do I have to keep changing? Why so can't true. he just stop? That is so true. And that's such a valid feeling. Yeah. So he started with the messages and then. So at that point, because he had already had an established pattern of behavior, I went to the police and shared what was going on. And I had printed out all the information again. And they sent me to this detective and she was so great. But she looked through the whole history of what had happened from 2014 to 2017. And then the second round when he was doing this. And she just looked at me and she said, are you sure you want to do this again? Are you sure you're ready for all that this will be? Wow. And I mean, that just like that just hit me so hard. It hit like a knife because it was just like, oh, yeah, it costs so much. But what choice do I have? It's either just accept that he's just never going to stop or it's fight it. And fighting it cost me something, cost me a lot. Yeah. And just her asking you that, like, I mean, what was your response? I feel like I would say, what? Like, what else can I do? That's what I said. I started crying and I said, what else can I do? There's two bad choices here. And the worst of the two bad choices is to just accept that he's never we're going to stop and let it happen. Like you said, like you don't know how far that will even escalate. And it's like, mm -hmm. why should you have to suffer for because of him mm -hmm. kind of thing? Yeah. So, so you went back to 
the legal process of it all. Mm -hmm. Yep. And at that point, he was extradited. He was in Colorado at the time. So he was arrested. Some rangers got involved. (laughs) Trying to remember. (laughs) It got really interesting. But he was extradited and it was like a four day trip in a van. And he later complained about that to the judge. It was really, I kind of laughed at that part. Like, yeah. Don't break the law. Put yourself in this situation. Right. So then by the time that happened, that was 2019. So there was months of messages then going to the police, then them trying to find him for several months. And so that was early or no, it was in, I think, May of 2019. So then when they set a trial date, it almost always gets delayed for one reason or another. A judge is busy or they have another trial going on. So then it gets delayed and delayed. And then they put it in 2020. COVID. Yeah. So then it's indefinitely delayed. But we finally had the trial in August of 2021. And at that point, I actually wanted to avoid a trial. I I was willing to make a deal like have two years probation, don't ever contact me again, like that kind of thing. But he wanted a trial. Because he He, wanted to see you. Yeah. So we had a trial. And how did the trial go? It was, so the district attorney on the case, you know, it's like I don't have my personal attorney when there's a criminal charge. It's the state against the perpetrator. So so she wasn't my personal attorney, but she was an incredible uh, district attorney. And she said it's one of the most disturbing cases that she's worked with. When you look at just the severity of his messages and the intent and just how disturbing it was, the obsession. And the judge, too. I talked to somebody recently who the judge referenced that case saying, like, have you met this woman named Jennifer? Because she, her case was one of the most severe cases I've worked with. So the trial was, goodness, I and mean, he represented himself. So he got to help pick the jury. So you don't have to be a lawyer. Was he a lawyer? No. So you don't have to be a lawyer to represent yourself. You just have to be okay with foregoing a lawyer and whatever mm-hmm. happens, happens. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So he got to act as his own attorney. And he, I mean, he would try to argue with the judge and like try to tell them the law. And because he's not an, an attorney, he he got put in his place several times. But his whole perception of everything was just so disturbing. And I think one of the most disturbing parts of the whole situation is it's bad enough to go through the crime itself. But then that aspect of the criminal justice system that a perpetrator can represent themselves and have access to cross-examine their victim and create more harm and damage because that's a very unsettling situation. And I've been in that situation with him through every order of protection, like so many times in front of so many judges where he gets to represent himself. And it's not right, you know, that a victim has to go through that. Yeah. And so when he would like do his line of questioning, would he even keep it appropriate or would he kind of get back into his delusions or did he know how to turn that off for the court? He tried to hold it together. He would ask me questions based based on his delusions. And I would answer them and and answer them based in reality. That frustrated him. But he was always trying to lead it to where, like, this wasn't actually breaking the law this time because you never told me not to communicate with you. And if you just would have said that, I would have stopped. And the judge actually interrupted him at one point and he said, if that were true, then you never would have contacted her again. Because it looks to me from this file like she had several orders of protection, like she called the police many times, you were arrested, you were on probation, like she's done everything imaginable to let you know she does not want you in her life. And he said the most important point, she also never said yes. She also never invited you into her life. So no, none of this lands on her 
that she didn't tell you no. I'm glad the judge stepped in and said that. Yeah. Fortunately, the judges that I've experienced, they all got very angry with him and were, it felt like they understood. It's not like they were on my side, but they understood clearly what was happening and they were able to articulate where he was manipulating and trying to make himself sound like a victim in the process. And then part of me would think like that would have a big effect on the jury, just like the judge stepping in and saying those things and pointing out the manipulations. Yeah. The jury was very, um, they were very affected by the trial. At one point, he got frustrated and he said, you guys are acting like I've already murdered her. And the jury just, I heard them. They just all went, (gasps) yeah, already? Like what? uh Uh-huh. As if that's Uh his plan. Like he's like telling the whole court that was his plan. Right. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, of course he said that. Like that's, that's who he is. That's how he like, yeah, everyone's shocked but me. Because he's been building in all of this delusion and obsession and love and also hatred for so long. Like, of course, that's what he says. So in the messages, he never would say harmful things like that, though. Like, as far as, like, murder and things, he would keep it more so just the delusion of, like, loving you and wanting you and you owe him. Yeah, he would say that, like, in addition to his obsessive thoughts about me, he also had actual delusions, conversations with he believed he was abducted by aliens. He believed he had conversations with ghosts all the time. And he, you know, he believed there were people in the government who were after him, like not related to the stalking case, but like people high up in the government who were after him. Like, so he had all of that going on as well. But the things that he said that really concerned me when he's angry and feeling entitled, all of this is entitlement, but feeling like I owe him something that felt really threatening. And also there were many times where he said that he was suicidal, but he's not too worried about that because God promised him that we would be together in the afterlife. So then if my safety rests on his mental stability, that's terrifying. Yeah. It sounded like that was his way of wanting you guys to be together in the afterlife. And that is Mm -hmm. more than terrifying. Right. If I can't have you here, I'll have you there. Very messed up. Oh my gosh. So during that court process, how long did the trial last? The trial lasted two days and the jury found him guilty. And the judge had a very powerful letter that he read at the end. It was one of those things because again, I think I can only speak as women. I think as women, it's easier to second guess ourselves in crimes. And and we see that happening all the time, whether it's rape, assault, stalking, whatever. We second guess ourselves and we think, well, did I do something? Should I have been there? Should I like those kinds of things? So to have other people validate like, no, this was a crime that you did not cause. You did not participate in. There's nothing that you did to create this. To have some part of the legal system as messed up as it can be validate that felt really empowering. So then he was sentenced to two years in jail for stalking and harassment. But unfortunately, is that the most you can get for stalking two years? So I can't speak for every state, but in Tennessee, even if it's a felony, stalking is a class E felony. So that's not necessarily jail time. And this time, because he had had those previous felonies erased from his record, these were misdemeanor charges, actually. But because the DA was able to show just how severe the stalking was and how disturbing his intent was. The judge gave the maximum sentence for both stalking and harassment. But he was in jail for two months and he appealed the process. He appealed the verdict 
And when you appeal the verdict, frequently you can be released until they decide something. Wait, what? That doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense to me. Yeah, I think he was appealing the verdict, but he was also appealing the fact that when he was arrested, the judge revoked bond, like so he couldn't get out. Like when you're arrested, if you post bail, then you can be out until the trial. But because of his behavior, the judge revoked that and there's no, you don't get to pay and get out until the trial. So because of that, I think then the court of appeals said, okay, then you can be out until we come back with our verdict. So then he's out and that was really discouraging because I didn't want to go through the trial in the first place, but then to have us go through it and go through the the stress and anxiety of going through the trial and then having the relief of, okay, now for two years, I don't have to deal with him at all. Like right. to have that relief just for a little bit and then he's out again. So then what happened is he is not communicated since then, but the court rejected his appeal. And when the court rejects that appeal, then he's supposed to come back and complete serving his two-year time period. And during that time, he had an ankle tracking device and I was getting notifications of his location. And at that point in time, he was in California. Was he allowed well, to leave the state? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot in the legal system. It's so shocking to me. Yeah, the DA at one point, I was kind of just processing the same stuff. Like this feels very, it's just not right. And she said, you have to remember the criminal justice system is set up for criminals and not for victims. Wow, yeah. Which sucks. We would naturally think that it would be set up for victims, but I mean, you said right. that. Now I'm like, okay. Right. Wow. It does suck and it's sad. Right. So when the court rejected his appeal with the information with his tracking device would tell me like that he needed to charge it because if it if the battery dies, they arrest you. You can't ever let it die. So then it would show the location and that the battery was low and then it just went away. So now he's just somewhere. Wait, they never found him? Wait a minute. So the if the battery dies, they're supposed to arrest him. But when they got to his location, he just wasn't there. Well, this was a company monitoring him in Tennessee. And the battery died with his last known location in California. Yeah. And they couldn't call California. I mean, they probably could have, but they didn't. They didn't. And so this was in 2020. This was, so the trial happened in August of 2021, and then he was out in November 2021. So then the verdict on the appeal came back at the end of 2022, and they rejected it, and that's when he disappeared. So he's been just gone, and there's no- he's never contacted you. Not so far. And just for you, like, how are you feeling? Like, after that, like, what was the feeling, and what did you have to do to kind of regain your sense of control and sense of, like, emotion? emotional security. So that felt like the worst case scenario in terms of the legal system to me to risk going through the trial to risk all the stress of that and then to have this be the outcome that I'm no better off for having done that. That felt really awful. And and just the impact of this over the years in general has absolutely taken a toll. So I do know things to do to regulate my nervous system and to help process trauma, but I also know my limits. So I absolutely got a type of therapy called EMDR to help process the trauma so it wouldn't stay. It stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. It's a type of trauma therapy that the theory is that when we have things like PTSD, anxiety disorders, or, or things we can't get past, it's because it's stored in the brain in a way that helps to ideally, if you're in danger, you want to be hypervigilant. You want to be alert. But when the danger ends, the brain doesn't register that. So the memory stays there. And EMDR shifts where the trauma is stored to where you can look at it from a more objective 
objective place and say, okay, that was really awful that I went through that, but I'm safe now. I'm okay now. So I went through that and that helped tremendously. And I also just did, um, I journaled a ton and I talked to friends and I, when I felt all the anger and the anxiety, I would go for a run or go for a hike. I did the essential self-care things. You know, I think people, we hear self-care a lot and it seems like fluff, you know, like they think of a spa day or or something like that. And it, it's really not fluff. It's really essential because it's only to the extent that we care for ourselves is at a baseline that we're able to care for others. And I have three kids and through the whole thing, they were my motivation because my children don't deserve a broken mother. So I will wow. heal because they deserve to not live with that because they saw what I went through. I did my best to hide a lot from them, but I knew if I didn't recover, that would affect their future tremendously. Yeah. Wow. That is really amazing. Do you feel like throughout this whole thing, do you feel like you've changed as a person as a result of it? Yeah, that's a hard question. I mean, in some ways, I'm the same, but I think before all this happened, I was the person who truly believed the best in everybody. Nobody can have bad intentions and nobody would want to hurt me, you know, and just kind of saw things in a hopeful and optimistic way. And there's still some of that, but that's definitely changed. But I don't think all the change has been negative because through that, I also worked with a group to lobby the Tennessee state legislature and updated the stalking law so that other victims wouldn't have to deal with the severity of what I dealt with so that much earlier in the process, they could have legal intervention. And that to me, like I had never had to advocate for myself to that degree. And that changed me as well. But that changed me in really positive and powerful ways. Yeah, that is so amazing. Like just you doing that, you're helping other women in Tennessee feel so protected. So mm -hmm. I am so in awe of that. I think that for you to be able to turn that really terrifying traumatic situation into a way that you can help other people, I feel like that just speaks volumes to who you are. So mm -hmm. that's really amazing. Thank you. I think that's in a situation that made me feel so powerless that felt like there's no redemption to this to bring empowerment to others like that just I don't know what, what's more empowering or healing than that I know yeah that even just you talking about it gives me chills that's really amazing so what advice would you give to other women who are going through a similar situation and advice that you wish you had when you were going through yours? I would say, so if another woman is going through this situation, keep every shred of evidence and keep it in a safe place. Have a safety plan with your family and with your friends. Make sure other people know about it. If you're uncertain if it qualifies as stalking or not, don't be the one to tell yourself no. Call the police, non-emergency number, unless you feel like you're actively being threatened and there's danger, in which case call 911. And if they say it's not stalking based on the laws where you are, then still keep the evidence because unfortunately stalking is it is a pattern of behavior and, and it is rooted in obsession and entitlement. So it typically doesn't just end abruptly. In fact, some of the books that talk about stalking say that it doesn't end until the stalker finds a new object to obsess. I've never, you know, I've never heard that. And that is kind of terrifying to think that. Absolutely. Yeah. So though another woman starts suffering, that's my exit. That's awful. Yeah. 
I would also say care for yourself because living in terror and fear and anxiety will begin to deconstruct who you are and how you show up in the world. And it's really important that you find ways to feel safe in your own body, to feel safe in your environment, to care for yourself, even in the midst of hard things. I love that. I think that is really powerful. And really just being able to regain that sense of control of of your body and of feeling at least somewhat safe in your body. I don't know if you'll ever feel safe when you're in that situation. But yeah, I think I think that's really good. Right. No, and that that is a good point. Like in that situation, you're not going to feel safe. And that is part of your brain and your body trying to make sure if you need to run, you can run. If you need to fight, you can fight. So we're not going to calm all of that down. But the act of nurturing yourself, making sure you're drinking enough water, making sure you're remembering to eat. Sometimes people with anxiety, it affects all of that. I can tell you for sure there was a solid period of months that I survived on Trader Joe's dark chocolate peanut butter cups because that's (laughs) the only thing I could digest. Wow. Yeah. Honestly, those things are so good. But yeah. (laughs) But not, not. Not probably your sole source of nutrition. Definitely not. They're good for a snack or like a dessert, but yeah. Uh Wow. Oh my gosh. So are there any resources or groups or anything that people could also consider if they are in the situation? Yeah. Look in your area for domestic violence centers. Look at counseling centers and see what people have in terms of support groups. I think that could be a great resource for people. And I think that's pretty vital because going through something like this, especially stalking like I always felt like it's such a weird thing to talk about almost like it I didn't want the attention but it felt grandiose to say like I have this guy stalking me and so it can make you I don't know it can just feel isolating so I think it's really important to have people in your life who can say yeah we hear you we get it we understand and you're not alone I think having people around you communicating that you're not alone is really important yeah I can definitely see that and I think even when I decided to do a safety series this month and share women's stories and talk about safety, I was looking into it. And I think some women do share their story with stalking, but I don't think a lot of people do because when I looked up the stats, please, if you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to say it's around 19 million women have dealt with stalking. So when I saw that, I was maybe is a little ignorant, but I was in shock. I was like, wow, I did not know that that happens to that many people. Yeah. And it's a fraction of that that ever reports it. Oh, wow. And then just like when you said that usually when they stop stalking one woman, they'll move on to the next object. And now like just learning all of these things, it just makes me really, it's just really eye opening. And Mm -hmm. then I even think this is kind of a separate topic, but I even think like when I'm out meeting people and I think I mentioned the other woman's story that I heard, like she went on two dates with a guy and then he stalked Mm -hmm. her after that. So it's just, you never really know, but I think knowledge is power. So the more people who share their story and the more things that we do learn, I think it is really helpful and it's eye-opening because I feel like a lot of us just don't really think about that. Right. Absolutely. I think it's so important that we talk about it too, because I think there are there are so many advances in technology and that can be such a good thing, but then it can also become a new way to stalk. Like there are cases of women where men drop a geo tracker in their purse at a bar and then they're following them home. That's great technology until it's used against you. Yeah. And honestly learning about this has even had me think about my social media like what am I putting up? Just trying to make sure I'm not putting up things that are too 
close to home and especially mm-hmm. since my profile is public like i don't mm-hmm. want you just never know what is going on through people's heads and people right just you know get this delusion think that you're all of a sudden supposed to be with them or just whatever it is and i think mm-hmm. all of that just kind of just makes me think about those kind of things and how i can keep myself safe as best as possible of course i mean we can only control so much but i think just even thinking about those things is helpful yeah i think it's i think it's sad but i, I think it's also just very true that as women we have to think through those things just like we have to think through walking through a parking garage at night in ways that men maybe not don't have to do but we do need to be mindful of those things because there's not a profile for a victim you know there's not a type of woman that's like more or less likely to be a victim of stalking the profile is in the perpetrator but not in the victim so for women in general to be cautious and wise about how they are handling social media what information they're they're presenting keeping things location private posting after you've been somewhere and not in real time things like that that might be a factor my favorite about just i make sure something i had to learn years ago like i do not post until honestly i'm so bad at these days it's probably a week later but i usually (laughs) I 100% won't post on there. I'll wait until I leave. Yeah, absolutely. I, I never post in real time anymore because, yeah, I don't want people to know where I am. Yeah, you yeah. don't know who's watching. And I, again, I think we have to have these conversations. I recently just recorded an episode with a woman. She goes around and she teaches self-defense to other cool. women, which it's so amazing. And she gave like the best safety tips. I learned so much from her. So I amazing. But yeah, just like as women, we have to, as much as it sucks, we really do have to move through the world differently. So. I'm so grateful for people like you and her who come on and just share their story, share their tips, and just you really helping us also just be a little bit safer and think about the things that we usually don't think about. So I'm so grateful and thank you so much for coming on, Jennifer. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun to talk to you. And I do want to ask you where people can find you if they want to follow you on social media or reach out to you. If you're open to sharing that, we would love to know. Yeah, sure. So I'm on TikTok. That's where I, I share the vast majority of the details of my stalking experience. And it's uh, the Jennifer Thames, and that's T-H-A-M-E-S. And it's the same on Instagram. Thank you all for tuning into this week's episode. If you really loved the episode and you felt like it resonated with you, be sure to share the love and share the episode with a friend. Also, if you could take a minute and head to the review section wherever you listen to your podcast and leave me a review, letting me know what you're loving about these episodes and which topics you want to hear next. That way, I can make sure that I continue creating episodes that you love. Also, make sure you hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. Until next week, bye, grown girl gang.